You're listening to an American Theatre podcast. American Theatre is a publication of Theatre Communications Group. www.americantheatre.org Good afternoon. Welcome to Off Script, the May 6, 2022 edition uh, of American Theatre's uh, live chat and podcast about all things theatrical. I'm Rob Weinert Kent. I'm the editor in chief of American Theatre magazine. My pronouns are he, him. I'm coming to you from the land of the Lenape in Manhattan. Uh, and I'm here with Allie Pearson. I'm the associate editor here at American Theatre, and I'm coming to you from the land of the Lenape in Queens. And my pronouns are she, her. We have been very busy, Ali, uh, Ali and I, and, and our, our team and freelancers in the past few weeks doing more features than we could talk about really <laughs> in the time we usually do. Just, but we wanna catch you up with some of the things we've been doing since our last off script episode. There's some stories that you might've missed or like to be reminded of. Um, kind of following up with our last, uh, uh, or resonating with our last off script guest, Tim Bond, who talked about August Wilson this production of Gem of the Ocean out of Theater Works. Uh, the following week, we ran a piece um, which also looks forward to our Pittsburgh conference, but it was about the August Wilson Cultural Center, August Wilson African American Cultural Center in Pittsburgh. Beautiful news, beautiful space, not new. Uh, I've, I've been there, it's, uh, it's been there for some time. But they opened a new exhibit called the August Wilson, The Writer's Landscape, in which they've, they've used some of his uh, materials, his actual desk that he wrote on, um, they've recreated a coffee shop that mimics with the place, some of the places he used to write. I know he used to write at the Edison Cafe here in New York. He was famous for, uh, when you could still smoke in restaurants, he would go, he would go from smoke all day and then sit and write in the coffee shops and talk to people. So anyway, it's a wonderful exhibit. Uh, a writer in Pittsburgh, Tarana Idea, wrote a piece uh, walking through the exhibit with uh, August Wilson's daughter. And she also spoke to August Wilson's widow, Constanza Romera. It's a beautiful piece about that and I'm looking forward to seeing that uh, when we go to Pittsburgh in June for the TCG conference. What else do we have, Allie? And moving forward to another wonderful writer, we have uh, excerpts from a new book, The Letters of Oscar Hammerstein. Um, and there are some wonderful letters in there. Uh, one that really stuck out to me was his letter with Stephen Sondheim. Um, they have this whole kind of exchange, you know, he offers his notes on, you know, you need a blackout here, you need a cutscene here. And and he was, um, he had another letter within uh, the, the director of the original South Pacific saying, you know, don't change too many things. Like once you start changing something, you wanna change the whole thing. And so he had some really wonderful advice and he even uh, encouraged Sondheim to write uh, his, one of his, his last works uh, about the Meisner brothers. Um, so that was really exciting to read. That's a great one to jump into. And then next, we have a marvelous interview by our writer Gabrielle Hoyt with Emma Jude Harris about uh, the role of, of anti-Semitism in the UK, specifically, you know, stemming from an incident at the Royal Court Theater, where they they've really bungled the press release and, and the writing of a character uh, was particularly anti-Semitic uh, and. Uh, the discussion of of you know Jewishness and Jewish culture in in the UK was just so fruitful. So that's another great one to read. Yeah, I highly recommend that one. Um, speaking of interviews, we did a ton of interviews. <laughs> There's just a lot going on. A April uh, was a very busy month for um, 
for Broadway in New York and off-Broadway, but it's been really busy around the country. So uh, we also spoke, so we spoke to a pair of playwrights who have new plays in New York, uh, uh, Sam Hunter, wonderful playwright, uh, uh, plays set in Idaho. His newest play is called A Case for the Existence of God. It's a beautiful play and it's fascinating uh, how that play relates to the title. I spoke to him about that. Um, that's at the uh, Signature Theater. Uh, and Deep did a, a wonderful deep dive on Sanaz Tusi, who is an uh, Iranian American playwright who uh, has sort of had a one-two punch of sort of, uh, of acclaimed shows. One was their show English at the Atlantic, and the other one is Wish You Were Here at Playwrights Horizons. It's up right now. Um, it's a great it's a great piece about about uh, her insistence on writing comedies, uh, or at least. Uh, not ceding uh, the territory of writing about women from Iran or the Middle East, more generally, or, or uh, Persia, South Asia, uh, and not making it all about tragedy. I mean, even though there's there's tragic stuff, it's a wonderful, wonderful voice that deep, deep captured there. I also spoke to two actors about their work in two classic shows on the West Coast. Zachary Quinto, who is in uh, a new production of Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? little head-scratching casting with him opposite Calista Flockhart. The reviews have been mostly positive, but I spoke to him before the reviews and we just talked a little bit about uh, the fact that he might be the youngest George I know of. He did point out that Richard Burton was actually younger uh, when he filmed the movie, but uh, 40 years old in the 60s, especially if you drink as heavily as Richard, <laughs> Richard Burton, is like, is like 55 now. But in any case, uh, that was a great interview. Uh, I also spoke to uh, uh, another old favorite of mine uh, from, from the movies of the 90s, Mary Elizabeth Mastrantonio, also a wonderful theater actress. Uh, she's in a uh, production of Ghosts at Seattle Rep, which I was able to watch virtually. I recommend it. You can, you can stream it. Um, I think that's still available. In any case, I spoke to her a little bit about Ibsen and reviving that. And uh, so wonderful Q&As with those folks. Um, many voices in this in the last couple of weeks. Um, Ali, I was especially happy with the piece though you did right right after or right around the time of our last off script. You didn't get a chance to talk about it. Yeah, uh, in a sort of revival of AT's strategy series, I uh, dove in to look at this wonderful new uh, Brooklyn theater company that's trying an, an all-you-can-see theater model that's based on a subscription and um, yeah, Super Secret Arts is, is trying something really different and it's been getting a lot of really positive responses and it was just so much fun to look at, you know, other ways of funding and other sources of making theater that kind of are out of the box. So that's another fun read if you're interested in, in how theater is made. Yeah, and I would say also a, a little sort of internal plug in a way, uh, we sort of revived the format of an old column we used to have in the print magazine and also in online called Strategies. Uh, which I believe Eliza Bent, uh, one of our previous uh, associate editors, she either came up with it or made it her own, but it's a wonderful format in which we look at sort of case studies of something that, uh, of an idea, of an experiment maybe, or of something new, whether it's in ticketing or it can be an aesthetic strategy, it can be uh, all kinds of administrative uh, innovations. So we look, look for more of those. And I, I think uh, Ali jumped into that format really well with this one. Uh, and it got a lot of traction online. People seem to like this idea. <sighs> speaking, of, 
speaking of stories that have gotten a lot of traction and are, are indeed, indeed about its theater's inner workings. Uh, this past week, we ran probably one of the longest and most detailed and probably most essential stories I've ever been a part of. Uh, Francisco Mendoza is a playwright and a writer from Argentina who's been here for a number of years in, in the US. And one of the places where he has felt most nurtured in his work was The Lark, which is a new play development space that was around for 27 years and then last fall suddenly announced that it was closing. And uh, this piece was a long time in the works. Uh, he talked to pretty much everyone involved um, who was willing to speak to him, which was remarkably a lot of people on really both sides of what was a, a familiar but painful conflict between the board, staff, uh, artists in there somewhere in the mix. Um, it's not an easy story, it's long, but first of all, it's not an easy story. It, 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 it resonates with a lot of challenges that anyone who works in the arts um, will recognize uh, about board priorities, uh, the turnover uh, from a founding, uh, a founding uh, artistic director to a successor and the challenges of that. And I just think a lot of, a lot of places in the field have faced these kind of challenges and, and, and come through in different ways. And I think it, it's tragic what happens to Lark, but it's really instructive to read. Uh, and Francisco did an amazing job. Um, we hope, uh, there were certainly some people who felt like, who were involved in the story, who felt like we maybe shouldn't go into so much detail or this should be, you know, we don't put this kind of scrutiny on every theater that maybe we should uh, or could, um, but we felt that it was important to follow through with this and that it had value for the field. That would be instructional, cautionary, whatever you might say. Um, in any case, um, so we are happy today, we should have teased this earlier, but we're happy today to have a guest, <laughs> uh, a, a unique, uh, who's with a unique uh, uh, angle for us, uh, the playwright Karen Hartman, who've written about a few times before, but she's got essentially a one woman uh, new play festival at the 59 East 59 theaters here in New York City. It, I believe it's a new thing that 59 and 59 is doing called Volt, and she's the first uh, iteration of that. Karen, why don't you come on and, 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 and tell us a little bit about, you've got three plays uh, essentially running in three different theaters in rep, is that, is that right? At, at um, Not in rep, at, but all at once. That is 100% right. <laughs> <laughs> yes. It's amazing, it's amazing. So they are, they are the lucky star, uh, which used to be called the Book of Joseph. We'll talk about that. Yeah. Um, the, the New Golden Age, mm -hmm. I think that's the title. And then Goldie Mickey and me, is that the right Goldie time? Max and Milk. Oh, good. Sorry. I don't have the notes in front of me. I was going from memory there. So, um, Ali, I think you wanted to ask the first question to sort of kick things off here. Yeah. Um, so, how did a festival of three works happen? And then, what has it been like? logistically to be in three theaters at once. <laughs> uh, okay, so I'll start with the first one, which is, uh, this is the brainchild of Valde, who is the artistic director of 59 East 59th. And um, Val took over as artistic director, I wanna say in 2017. And although 59 East 59th is a, it's a presenting space, meaning that companies it's a curated presenting space. So companies put on their own productions, but there are things that 
59 presents that are sort of a festival, like they do a Brits off Broadway, that's all British things that come in. And because 59 does New York premieres, Val had an idea to present a series of New York premieres all at once, kind of like signature theater on steroids style, but of plays by um, a writer who had like a, a good track record nationally, but had what Val considered to be three New York worthy plays that had not been seen in New York. And um, I believe I kind of lucked into being the, the first because um, my play, The Lucky Star, formerly The Book of Joseph, was in process finding a slot at 59 East 59th. And um, it occurred to Val, partly also through the director of Lucky Star, Noah Himmelstein. So Val was like, kind of knew my work, but thought, oh, maybe I should read through all of your other plays because maybe you would be our good number one. And also Primary Stages had come quite close to producing one of my plays, Rosin Ray. So that was sort of like almost two out of three. I, I think I just got really, I think I got really lucky. And I also think I'm a, a sort of, I hope kind of poster child for uh, a writer who's had a, a lot of amazing opportunities, but still could use some New York energy. So I think that's what happened. <laughs> and what's it like I think I'm ha I feel like I'm having triplets like that's the only thing I don't know anyone who's had triplets but I have this feeling all the time like this is the most incredible most difficult most glorious uh experience I could ever imagine I'm like full of emotion full of love all the time and I always feel like one of the babies is gonna die so I'm always kind of running around, but that's because you're talking to me right now. Two of the shows are in previews and one opened last night. So it's actually like they've all previewed at the same, they're all in previews at the same time and they're opening. So Lucky Star opened last night, go see Lucky Star and um, Goldie Max and Milk opened Sunday the 8th and New Golden Age opens on May 11th. So it's just, yeah. <laughs> feel highly alive. <laughs> it's, it's a bit of be careful what you wish for, like uh, having having three openings at once. Uh, I, I noticed looking back at uh, coverage we did about Book of Joseph before that you had you seemed to, to go in threes. You had three plays premiere in the 2016-17 season, right? All different places. Is that right? I did. <laughs> I did. And um, that was really incredible it was a little bit more spaced out <laughs> I thought that was incredible to have three premieres in one season and it was and it was sort of similar where just because of how season planning works it's like Chicago Shakes had was on a slower cycle and so Book mm -hmm. of Joseph had been written first but you know how these things work so it all just all all popped up at the same time well, so I wonder if we could just go through the plays one by one, then talk about some commonalities. Maybe that'll come up as we talk about them anyway. But I want to talk with the luck, start with the Lucky Star, which just yeah. opened. Um, and I know it was formerly called the Book of Joseph. And I wonder, it had a few productions, uh, Everyman Theater and Chicago Shakes, which commissioned it. Um, and this is a, this is a based on Richard Hollander, uh, Richard Hollander's book uh, about his family, his father and, and the family that was Polish Jewish family that was mostly lost in the Holocaust That's right. um, and, and the letters that he found. Um, 
just to give people the, the basic, it's sort of based on that. And, and, and you, were, you were hired by Chicago Chic. They were looking for a writer for this. Is that right? Well, commissioned. I mean, yeah. Commissioned, right. Yeah, right, yeah, right. Yeah. Um, I wonder, first of all, why, why the name change? Is this book of Joseph too biblical or? Yeah, I mean, I guess I think books are super cool. And I think to me, the idea of the book of Joseph is very, um, it's like a great invitation. But it turned out that for a lot of people, it either sounded like biblical or didactic or not everybody loves books, kind of you know boring <laughs> or closed. So right. um, the lucky star is another theme that was really important to me in writing the play, which is this kind of um, anti-Aristotelian, anti-protagonist mission that I've been on for a long time. That's like, well, how much do we determine our own fates and how much mm. are our lives determined by the times we live in? And mm. so the book of Joseph, AKA the lucky star, it, it's this collection of letters by people who did not escape the Krakow ghetto, mm -hmm. yet the youngest son did. And he did that partly because he was extraordinary, partly because he was lucky. He got a lot of people out who were not his family and I won't spoil things, but it sure. doesn't end well for everybody in the play. Right. And, you know, in developing the play, this question came up that was like, well, what was his, you know, flaw that he could do so much, but then he couldn't get his own family out? Like what, like that kind of question, because this is an insider American theater conversation, that like protagonist question, like why was he broken? Why couldn't he do what he set out to do? But actually it's a question you can't ask of a character because the answer was he was up against the Nazi death machine and it was much bigger than he was. And so he couldn't get them out, spoiler alert. But so the Lucky Star <laughs> actually focuses on the role of luck and fate and life versus the role of human um, effort and endurance and um, all the things that we believe should make a character. So I, I, I actually wanted to call it the lucky star in the first place, okay. Chicago Shakespeare, but they thought it sounded too much like the Madonna song. But <laughs> nine years later, the Madonna song is less on people's minds, so. <laughs> sure, sure, lucky star. It, well, it, it, does, it does have a more optimistic sound too. People are like, the lucky star, what's, what's that about? They, they, they wanna hear, they lean into that kind of a title, I guess. Um, yeah, when you need all of the invitation you can get, because it, it's, it's a heavy subject. Not gonna right. lie, but it has a lot of like humor and love and hope, hope and irreverence and stuff. So, well, the one thing I wanted to ask you about, and this is covered a little bit in the piece we wrote about Book of Joseph before, about four years ago, was it's almost like your play interrogates the author a little bit, and 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 it sounded like Richard, in the quotes we read there, was okay with that, but but that basically you're you're not just challenging this idea of the hero, the protagonist, but the idea of a sort of clean narrative, which we know from the start. Uh, at least the stage directions give us the clue, but I'm sure this comes off on stage as well, that he's not telling us the whole story and he's trying to over-idealize his father um, to the point where he, at one point he says, what would Joseph do? It's like he's, <laughs> he's, he's like this saint uh, in, in his mind. And, you know, that's very moving, but it's clear. Uh, I, the other thing I thought about was it was like into the woods, almost like the first act, there's a happy ending and then there's a question mark and then come back and then we find the real story, right? Um, I love that, yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, so yeah, I mean, was, was it was Richard obviously was fine with that. But, you know, it, it's, this doesn't have the same name as his his book. It's not like it's in competition with with his material. It's just a it's a 
a riff on it, a version of it, right? Yeah, I mean, it, it uses, um, I mean, his book is a book of letter. Is, is his book yeah. is mostly the letters themselves with some essays about uh, giving historical and political context for the letters. And um, uh, the, um, the play also quotes a lot of the letters and, and the people in the Krakow ghetto, you meet almost exclusively through their own words and the documents. And there's also right. um, an interrogation scene that's an immigration taken from an immigration transcript hearing. Mm. Um, but yeah, Richard was really, he was really dear about this because I pretty much said from the beginning when um, Barbara Gaines at Chicago Shakespeare approached me with this idea, I feel like the story is about Richard and how a person with a comfortable life chooses not to interrogate a traumatic family legacy and why we make those choices and how we could have the courage to maybe ask tougher questions, but also live in greater um, intimacy and um, wholeness with the hard parts of our past, right? And so that that's kind of where I live. And that's why I took it on as a commission, mm. because sometimes you get a commission that just intersects with what you want to work on anyway. And that was right. very much the case with this stuff. So Richard was pretty flexible about it. <laughs> he was like, just don't make me, you know, a child molester. Like, don't make me, don't make up anything terrible. But if you want to, but yes, you can right. can point out those. Uh, you can point out my flaws. You can point out my blind spots. And mm -hmm. I interviewed Richard and his son Craig and um, a couple of other uh, key uh, survivors from the story um, mm -hmm. to really build it out past the letters into this more contemporary question of what do we what do we do. With, mm -hmm. with history, like what do we actually do with these stories? Um, mm -hmm. Which is to me the question of the play and, and how do we live in truth with our past and with our families? Well, you know, that, that resonates also with, I think, uh, New Golden Age, but I think, um, I think Ali wanted to ask about uh, Goldie. Yeah, uh, I'm so excited to talk about Goldie, Max and Milk. Yay! Um, <laughs> not. <laughs> I mean, I know we're, we're moving from, from a heavy topic and into, you know, some humor here, but just such a funny, smart play um, you. with, you know, just so much in there for women, I think, to, to relate to and, you know, all audiences to relate to, but it's, it's so much that, that I think people who don't have that experience might not get. So to clarify, Max... Uh, has just given birth in the play and is kind of embarking on this journey of, of raising a an infant and, and healing from a C-section and all of these things. Yes. And, and so a lot of what the play deals with is maybe the pressure to be perfect or from the demands of motherhood to just kind of mm -hmm. come naturally and, and Max has trouble letting mm -hmm. others help. Um, and so I'm curious where, where that came from for you and, and maybe what, what, what your impulse for writing this play was? <laughs> well, um, that's a great question. And thank you for uh, your affinity with the play. Um, 
Yeah, uh, I had well, a lot of things that happened. So this is a super, super personal play that I wrote um, when my son, who is now 15, was an infant. So that gives you a sense also in terms of the Volt Festival, this, the scope of how meaningful it is to have something um, come up after all of this time. Um, and um, I had uh, recently ended, a pre uh, shortly before that, ended a long same-sex partnership and was in, had fallen in love with a man, had had a child with this man, my husband, Todd London, you may not know him. Um, and I was at the same time kind of thinking back on, you know, you think back on all the ways that life could have gone and all of the communities that I sort of was part of and then wasn't part of anymore. And also the extremists of having a baby and having a C-section and being at home and doing that in the context of, um, being like a reasonably supported new mom myself. And something that I do in playwriting and think is a, is a good thing um, to teach or to take on is when you write something from your own experience, you think about what got you through that experience and maybe you take that away from your character, right? So that your character, you, you, you can use your experience, but it's, it's worse for your character. So I just, it was pretty easy to conjure a what if of like, what if I were by myself? What if this baby had come about in one of the many ways that my ex and I had contemplated starting a family? And at that time, the, our legal status, my ex and mine, was really nebulous. Um, we, were, we had had a Vermont civil union in 2000, and we were unable to end it in New York City because it wasn't recognized in New York City. So my baby <laughs> was technically, possibly um, uh, uh, vulnerable to a claim of maternity by my ex, who would never, ever have done anything like that. Never, never. But just legally, thinking about, wow, in some states, the next of kin is this person to whom I was married, but I can't, from whom I cannot divorce due to the way the laws are. So it was pretty easy in my new mom state to just spiral all of those feelings um, and create this scenario with this single lesbian mom and her Orthodox Jewish lactation consultant, who is another subculture in Brooklyn, another community that I'm not part of, but know something about, and just how those two sets of values, but yet both completely fixated on getting this child to nourish, to nurse, and to thrive, could come together. And, and it just, it's like, as soon as I thought of it, it was very funny and very um, urgent. <laughs> Yeah, especially right now with with everything that's happening politically, it, it says so much about bodily autonomy. And I think that's so important. Yes, yes, very much so. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, thank you for making that connection. Yeah, that's very true. Was that play written? So that play was written a, a while ago, I guess, as you said. Yeah, right? that play was written um, in, it was written around 2009, 2010. Um, it premiered at Florida Stage, which then folded. It was so many, I can't even go into the list. It was almost produced at, it was like the, also ran at two like super major off-Broadway theaters. It was really a play that 
honestly kind of broke me because I felt mm. like I really did it. I really wrote an awesome play <laughs> that was super personal and super funny. And I, I felt like I put it together as well as I could. And mm. that was that that feeling of like, oh, wow, if if this play is not enough, like, I don't know if I can ever do anything that's enough because this mm. is this is like the best I can do. Um, so I, again, to see it in this production and it's such a good production, Jackson Gay has directed an insanely just gifted and warm and smart and connected cast, including, um, uh, I don't know how to say this. It's like even 10 years ago, there were not visibly queer women who were acting in the theater. I mean, obviously there have always been queer people in the theater, but in terms of people who would actually look on stage the way that people should look in the play, it's right. like the cast is just, they're just magnificent and so connected. So That's awesome. Yeah. I know Jackson's really good with comedies, if, if I remember correctly. She is, because she's very, <laughs> very real. Yeah. And so she doesn't, nothing is pushed. Um, right, right. Yeah. Um, well, so it is almost like a mini signature season where they're going back, <laughs> they're back over, back over some, some older ones. I, I get the impression from New Golden Age that that's a newer play. Uh -huh. um, be, given that this, were, this is a dystopian near future scenario, a lot to do with privacy and a sort of, I mean, I'm not giving anything away to say the premise is sort of as if Facebook were implanted in all of us essentially, or there was a, or some kind of, some kind of uh, device we don't even have phones anymore. There's just like, it's the kind of thing people sort of half joke about. Like one day we're going to see implanted in our, in our bodies. Like this, that's, this play yes. envisions that. <laughs> I, I did want to ask you specifically, is this the world premiere of New Golden Age? And did you write it before or after the pandemic? Because there's a lot of references that sound, you know, to plagues, but also to, to something called a pause, yeah. to social distancing. Just, could you tell me a little bit about the, how that plan came about and when specifically too? Yeah, yeah, that's, thank you. That's a, yes. It is the world, it is very much the world premiere and we're like hot and heavy into, I, we just froze the script like yesterday. So yes. Um, right. And so I um, uh, have been kind of like worked into a panic over the big tech stuff, but also the monopoly stuff with Amazon and specifically with kind of Jeff Bezos sort of owning cult, big cultural arms like mm -hmm. the Washington Post or Amazon Studios or the mm -hmm. way that Amazon creates this like simulacra of this kind of like liberal um, niche culture that's very interesting to people like quote unquote us and yet functions as this monster capitalist monolith at mm -hmm. the same time. So it's like the values it shows and the values it uses are totally oppositional and that scared me and also I lived in Seattle for four years which is kind of like an Amazon company town so I, I really wanted to write about Amazon and how someone from the in how someone could try to do a sort of double cross of like writing about Amazon for Amazon like that was the first idea hmm. um, and I got a Guggenheim fellowship to write this play and I this was so in the fall of 2019 um I interviewed this um, young lawyer who's now the federal trade commissioner, Lena Khan, um, to, who had written this anti-Amazon treaties and uh, legal, legal brief that had become famous. Um, I will not go into it, but had made this case for monopoly 
how to make an anti-monopoly case against Amazon. And I, I was fascinated by um, this Antigone-like relationship of this young woman taking a stab, uh, a stand against a monolith. Mm -hmm. And so that was the seed of the play. But then came, I wrote a very fast draft of it at Space on Rider Farm in literally February, 2020. Wow. And then came the pandemic which then gave sort of a reason for why we could, how we could have moved from where we are to the place set in 2033, where due to increasing, like we're talking on Zoom right now, due to increasing reliance on technology and the sort of combination of fear of plague and rise of tech, mm. we become a society that's more and more connecting what we now call virtually, but it, there are different terms used in the play. Yeah. And we are less and less doing what we do in theater, which is just like hang out in a room live. And yeah. so that the play is really about the fear of losing that live intimacy. That was a long answer, sorry. Yeah, but. no, no, it's, I think it's all in there. Um, there's a lot of, I don't know if cyber is the word, but it's sort of, uh, uh, sci-fi like the, the way the way the way sci-fi worlds are built with sort of jargon where people get to kind of figure out what they're talking about but in a way that feels very convincing i often think about when i hear myself and my kids talking about technology if you time traveled from 20 years ago you would not know anything we're talking about it would sound like a science fiction and and, and i think your play captures that well that's like this is a few, few years maybe 20 years in the future 30 who knows and it does have this sort of it sounds like conversation but what are they really what is this? And, and, and it comes up through in context, right? Um, well, it's actually, actually, that's part of what the revisions have been is oh, okay. that um, feel, being, trying to be a little bit more generous and a little bit more genre and kind of okay, establish right. a bit more upfront, like not sure, a sure, bit, sure. but like a lot more upfront in terms okay. of like, here we are, this is what's going on, go. Okay. Instead of like, go. And in, while you're following the people, you also have to catch up to the, rules of this new society so right I mean it also seems to be a play about narrative and about mm -hmm. almost compete like the little scenes that are acted out which I, I guess again this go into details but the this sort of Elon Musk Jeff Bezos Zuckerberg type person in the play Matt uh, he's got this new idea of seed bank tales I think it's called and they're yes. basically they, they they're played out as almost like plays they're almost like these little little uh, you know, juice boxes of feeling that you can squeeze and feel like, oh, oh I, I love I, that. I love that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> just like, just case commodifying feeling. And, and I know they, they play like little scenes or maybe like reality TV or something that, that we're, that we're privy to. Um, I wondered that, and that brings me to the question we have, I was on Facebook asked a question that we wanted to ask was um, how these plays speak to each other. Uh, you know, there's obviously a fa family is one thing. Of course, that's a lot of lot of lot of theater, a lot of great uh, yeah. dramatic literature. But your particular take on family, and I also one thing I noticed was uh, there's an amazing moment in um, the Lucky Star when Munio Blaustein, when they meet him later, and he talks about how he just realizes he loves crying. He just loves it. He just feels yeah. great, and it just it feels a lot like the way uh, the characters in new golden age sort of are milking feelings or feeling the feels and they realize that emotion is just this thing that 
it feels good to feel them, even the hard ones, right? Um, mm. But I don't know. I, that, that's, those, that's, an anal- that's an analog I saw. I don't know. Uh, if, if you feel, as you're working on them, they're wildly different plays. It shows a great versatility. Your versatility as a writer in your range. But do you feel like if someone asks you, what do these plays have to say to each other? Why are they together? What do you say? Yeah, I mean, there's a way that they are. I, I think that's right. I think one of my one of the things that I'm always this is sort of always fueling me is this question of um, of intimacy and how do we make those human intimate raw moments like bigger and how can we see more of those and how can we come as you are a bit more as people in the world like the, the theater that I'm interested in. Um, and, and this sounds very domestic, but it isn't necessarily, it's like the theater that I'm interested in has a way of like uh, just cutting cutting through bullshit, I guess, and just how do, how do we connect, right? Mm-hmm. And so in all of these plays, we have people who are trying to break through a kind of isolation and connect. And that they may not even know that that's what they're, trying to do um so that's a that's a big part of it um and I think also these plays have to do with what we as real people do about the politics and the times that we live in right so Goldie Max and Milk you know it's a single lesbian mom an orthodox Jewish lactation consultant the main character Max is basically going through something that's what I just said it's like intimacy, closeness, new mother. She's going through it in a context where she has few political rights. She is alone. She's concerned about finances. She's being judged by, you know, a religious woman. So the people are also dealing with kind of the how you meet your time of it all. And I feel the thing that freaks me out the most about social media, as I've learned more about it, especially, um, through the writings of Shoshana Zuboff, who wrote um, this book, Surveillance Capitalism, is that they trade on kicking up our feelings, right? Mm. So it's like a, a member of, of the cast shared that when her father died, you know, they made a memorial for him on Facebook. And now she can't quit Facebook because that's where her father's memories live, right? So it's like, they're coming for who we for the things we really want to see, the things we really want to share. And that's what keeps us on the sites. And Mm. that scares me because I feel like that's my turf. That's our turf as artists is like feelings, but they are commodified. That is the most valuable thing because if you can make someone feel something big, you can keep them there. And like, Mm. we know that when we write musicals, like we, we are on the same thing, right? But it's really scary to me that that is what's being traded. And so, yeah, I mean, feelings is a very big topic, but you said it really well. And there's a kind of past, present, future of these plays too, in terms of just how we're working through um, that that emotional mess, that that like heart mess. Hmm. Yeah, that, I, there's an amazing exchange where one character tries to explain to the other Back in our day, like one of those conversations, like people just talked on the phone and it's like, it wasn't captured. It's like, what? They couldn't even conceive the idea that information was just 
people just talked to talk and there was nobody capturing it, transcribing it, selling it, advertising off of it, you know, just like, and what's eerie about that scene is like, I feel like I'm not quite the character who doesn't know and never knew that world, right. but I'm, I'm also a character who knows, or I'm not a character, I'm a person who knows that that's a plausible conversation to have with a young person, like, you know, like the more innocent version of my kids don't know on non-on-demand TV. They go to a hotel, like, this is a magical world where things are just on, what? Right, <laughs> right. and it's like, it's like, it changes so fast. Yeah. And, and it's not like we're keeping these memories alive for, it's not like, oh, we must remember the days when you just turned on the TV. And the TV no, no, there. exactly. It's just kind of, <laughs> but it's strange. It's changed very fast. Yes, and yes. the sense that everything's going to try to find exactly what you want and be that so that your attention can stay there so that yeah. your attention can be sold for something else is like freaking terrifying. Well, we are on Facebook right now. I know we are. <laughs> and we yeah. have a question. We have a question for Facebook. Allie, would, yeah, one on. of our one of our Facebook viewers has asked about the re-entry or restart process for, for theaters, you know, coming out of lockdown and and, you know, for some of the performers, this might be one of their first in-person things that they've done in a while. And how has that been for, for you and the Volp cast and creative teams? Mm -hmm. Oh, that's a great question. It's been um, mostly really intensely um, beautiful because we're all feeling things. It's, I don't think we're ever gonna take for granted the ability to gather in a room and do theater again. You know, I don't think I will take that for granted again in my lifetime. So um, it's, you know, the dates for this festival were rescheduled three times. Um, New Golden Age was not written when the festival was supposed to first be, be produced. So um, it's like more vital and immediate and that's thrilling. Um, you know, there's a lot of COVID testing and a lot of safety measures. So there's, there's that. Um, and actually New Golden Age has uh, a section, not to be a spoiler, but there's a section where um, we check in as an audience with the live experience because the, the play is so concerned in a way with that very thing because the people mm -hmm. in the world are experiencing a kind of constant re-entry and retreat and re-entry and retreat. And so there is a moment where we as an audience in a real way got to get to re-enter. And of course I conceived that moment doing things that then we weren't allowed to do. Like everyone was supposed to eat together, you know? And it's, so it's like, I've had to reconceive that moment with Jade King Carroll, the director, uh, like around what's actually possible. So it, it kind of goes head on into that question. And I feel like that, that check-in moment has been, it's been really gratifying. It's very weird, but it's been um, gratifying because people need it. The audiences are, uh, a little nervous and a little thrilled to be there. Hmm. Yeah. I, I'm curious about uh, looking back and so we wrote also about when you did Project Dawn, the People's Light. Um, yeah. And I think when I think about that play and also uh, Book of Joseph's Lucky Star, those are both plays that are adaptations or based on documentary type material. And they yeah. both, <clears throat> I think you, you spoke about both of them being important breakthroughs for you as a writer. But do you feel like there's these different categories you work in, you work in adaptation slash documentary based plays, and then the ones that are about, you know, come from entirely from your imagination or about based on your own life? Do you think of them separately or they feed each other? Um, 
they feed each other. I, I have more energy as a writer and capacity as a writer than I do ideas for new works, to be honest. Like, so it's like, right. I don't, I don't have like seven ideas a year for a new place, but I, I have lots and lots of capacity to work through a lot of material and to write a lot. And also I really welcome, I've been writing for a long time. I've been writing since I was a kid. And so this combination actually of Goldie Max and Milk, me feeling like, okay, my personal, what is most personal to me is not going to meet my time. So I need to look for what is in my time. And mm. Book of Joseph came my way as a commission. And I felt like it really expanded me to go and like meet these survivors, meet these people, hear their stories, but tell their stories like through the megaphone of my own kind of heart and dramatic sensibility. And I felt that a hundred percent with Project Dawn, my mm. kind of all other path in life might have been to be a lawyer and I'm obsessed with courts and sitting in courts and listening to these women and meeting the women who started this um, special court was it again it was really expansive um, and a platform for some of the feminist um, rage and questioning that I've been doing for my whole career and life as well so it's like the project has to sit right with what really matters to me. Um, and I write musical books as well. And it's the same thing. It just, it just has to be, Marsha Norman has this phrase that's like your stuff. It's like every writer has their stuff. And so if something comes to me that's on my stuff, I can do it. It doesn't, it doesn't matter who, where the story came from. Um, mm -hmm. And then there are also things that come out of my head as well as New Golden Age and Golden Max and Milk. <laughs> You know, right. I mean, it, it, a musical book is more of a technical thing. I, I, I want to I hear about Rattlesnake Cake because I've heard a lot, of yeah. a lot of excitement about that show. Yeah. Uh, it was at Denver Center recently, fairly recently, a couple months ago. Yeah, very right? recently. It just, yeah. it was February, March. Yeah. 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 So tell me about Rattlesnake Kate. And, and I. <laughs> yeah. So Rattlesnake Kate was a collaboration with the singer songwriter, uh, Neela Pekarik. Was formerly of this band, the Lumineers, yeah. and Mila is from Colorado, and had, um, as a college student in Greeley, Colorado, learned about this little-known real-life figure, um, Kate Slaughterback, who, out on a food-finding mission with her three-year-old son on horseback, came across a migration of rattlesnakes. Rattlesnakes used to migrate and she jumped off her horse, left her kid on the horse and killed 140 rattlesnakes in a two hour battle. First she shot them, she ran out of bullets, she clobbered them and she survived it and became this kind of 1929 Twitter sensation, TikTok sensation by making a dress out of their skins and being covered all over the world for this achievement. But then she remained this hard scrabble farmer for the next 50 years, had six husbands, like had this crazy life. And so this show becomes about what happens to a woman who lives like outside the rules of her time and what happens to a woman whose rage and power become so strong and so known that she's suddenly mythologized and has to like always fill those shoes and yet, again, to our point, wants intimacy, wants connection. 
Um, and the score is phenomenal. So I hope that this is, I hope there is more to come for Rattlesnake Kate. Um, but it was a beautiful production. Chris Coleman, the artistic director of Denver Center, uh, directed it. Dominique Kelly did the choreography. Um, yeah. And the lead actor was the one that was in the uh, soft power. What's her name? Yeah, uh, Elise Allen Lewis. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. I was looking. But she's one of those, actually, it's a shared lead. There's three okay. women who play, um, who play Kate. So, um, yeah, Andrea Ferson and Liana Ray Concepcion were the other two Kate. So it's like Andrea Ferson. Yeah, I I, I know her from uh, Layman Engel BMI Musical Theater Workshop. What a small yeah. world! Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> wow, that, that I'm even more excited. I hope that that it does sound like the kind of story that is uh, both cries out to be theatricalized, but also has obvious challenges to theatricalize, like that rattlesnake uh, scene. <laughs> How they cracked it. Show, they cracked it. They did it. Yeah. Yeah. Well. Song and dance, man. It's like you can do a lot. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. That's true. Um, and how did you? How did you get into musical book writing? From where? From where you were? Was it just again? Was it always an interest of yours? Uh, music and musical theater. Um. Yes and no. My uh, my brothers are both musicians, okay. and I have no musical talent myself. And um, I actually first wrote the, the late great producer, Ben Mordecai was um, an early supporter of mine. He died in 2005, but he brought me on board to write um, a musical project that went to workshop and didn't go anywhere like most musicals do. Um, but I got a little bit hooked on it. And I think because my tendency as a writer actually is to go too spare and to kind mm. of underwrite um, Noah Himmelstein, who directed Lucky Star, says I have a cold, dead heart, despite all we've been saying about intimacy, because I'm always <laughs> wanting to pull back. I, like some, I always think something is going to be too much when really it's actually going to maybe be like lovely, like a lovely emotional moment. And I'm <laughs> afraid of sentiment, um, I think, because I am just such a, such a sentimental fool. Sure. So <laughs> in musicals, the book has to do that. It's like it wants to be very... Um, kind of spare and tight and almost um, stingy to make room for the songs. And mm -hmm. that feels really natural to me. Uh, so I really like it. I, I like like working with Neela. She has this uh, magnificent sense of, of vocal scale and of audience and of just like landing right on the feeling. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm collaborating as well on this musical, Alice Bliss um, with Adam Guan and Jenny Gearing. And like, Adam and Jenny just have these songs that just like crack your heart open. And so there's just something wonderful about just giving the setup and the context and mm -hmm. keeping it forward. And it's like a left brain thing a little bit too, where you're, you're the, you're not the artiste in the room. You're the sort of um, puzzle maker. And I don't know, I, it's just, I enjoy yeah, that it. Sounds like, that sounds like the, yeah, be, being a crafts person as well as being able to be spare are both important uh, qualifications for that, right? You don't want to like, yeah. like, you know, Tony Kushner did write a great musical, but he's it, it's the opposite kind of like, I need to make a big speech here. Like, no, that's gonna be a song, sorry. Song. <laughs> yeah, 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 no, and I would love to write lyrics too. I just haven't done oh, it yeah. yet, but yeah, I, yeah. but writing as book is like, yeah, it's, it's, it's sort of fun because you're, um, you also get to play in a different arena for me, then I have the skills for because I don't have these musical skills. 
but I've come to love musicals and love that excuse for feeling. So. Well, I, I sometimes feel like musicals and screenplays are very similar. They're, it's about structure mm-hmm. as more than it is about big areas of, of, of words, you know, it's really building, building something, right. You know, even if it's not following a t- you know, typical Aristotelian narrative, it's still, they're building blocks of some kind. Right. Um, yeah, and you have a whole side hobby as like a music guy. I mean, like you're very deep into music. I, well, Not I, hobby. No, I didn't mean to say hobby. No, well, it is, it is more of a hobby. I'm a music minister at a church and uh, I used to have a band, but yes, and I was in a workshop, but this isn't about me, Karen. <laughs> but no, it's, it's, I mean, it's one of the things that keeps me, you know, close to theater and musical theater. So, you know, it's definitely a huge interest of mine. Um, so yeah. I'm fascinated to see, to see these work, the works you're talking about. Um, Holly, I think you had a one to ask. Yeah, a this is too. this is a little bit heavy, but you know, you've worked <laughs> all over the country for a while. You've done musicals, you've done plays, you've done comedies, you've done dramas. Like, how do you feel about the state of the field? Are you optimistic about theater going forward? <laughs> I love how you're like, this is a little bit heavy. I mean, like my plays are like Holocaust, children's plays. <laughs> like I write, and then it's like. I'm like, wh- where is she coming with Elizabeth with a little bit heavy, this, the state of the field? <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Allie. But I, I guess you think it's a little bit heavy, the state of the field. Yeah. It's a big it's question. A though. Yeah. Yeah. It's a big question. I guess the state of the professional field is pretty bad, right? Like it's very, very hard. I think we're meeting a time where there's a, a long delayed reckoning about ending a s- system where it's a sort of, you everything, is, it's like one long unpaid internship to be a part of the American theater. I mean, to work on a musical, it takes seven years. And if you're lucky, you're commissioned at the beginning and you get a few, like literally a few thousand dollars at the beginning. And then you're somehow like making your own way through the next seven years, right? So how do you do that? You have to somehow fund, you have to somehow just have the money to do that or have, and it's all really impossible. And I think that that's just one example. So we're trying to end a system where people are underpaid and that creates um, a de facto world of just the elite. At the same time, I mean, you guys know this, fewer people are coming to the theater and there's less funding. So there's less money. And yet people actually need to be paid. So it's a little bit impossible um, in terms of any kind of profession. On the other hand, um, there's something that is like radically not going anywhere about people meeting live to make stories. Like that is, I don't see that as being in danger or even changing or even people are still training to go into the theater. People still want to do theater. So in that sense, in a in that sense, the theater is doing great. I mean, there are incredible artists, incredible talent. There's finally the a, a much closer level of diversity and excellence over a long enough period of time that leadership is starting to change. I mean. So in so many ways, it's amazing and the work is amazing. So yeah. it's, hard, it's hard to get too upset because mm-hmm. the work is fantastic on every yeah. level um, and meeting new young um, actors as because I've been privileged to be in casting. And it's like, 
the performers are extraordinary. So there's nothing, there's no problem with the theater except money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I feel that. I feel that push pull uh, pretty viciously. And the last couple of years have given us all a time to, you know, really reckon with it, maybe obsess about it, maybe worry or catastrophize. And now we're back doing it and hopefully we can do, do better. Um, Ali, I think you had to, you wanted to, we're getting close to our time here. I wanted to end on something maybe a little yeah. lighter now. Just to end on, on maybe a fun note. Um, what's feeding you amidst all of the, the, the crazy schedules and the, the three shit? Like what, what are you streaming? What are you reading? What, what's, mm. what's keeping you grounded right now? Mm. Um, I, uh, I've, I've turned to doing uh, an affirmations practice that um, my close friend, the playwright Tanya Barfield told me to do. <laughs> Tanya's like a, a mega a TV person also. Uh, so I'm actually writing down every morning positive things that are true and that I want to be true. It's very embarrassing to admit this. It's not how I usually go through my life, but just to try to, rem to remember to, to kind of, live and breathe in this extraordinary like once in a lifetime experience and also to stay present for these companies uh, that are mm. so extraordinary and that I'm working with. Yeah, um, that's so great. Yeah. I don't, want, I don't want to veer too much, but we did get one more Facebook question. We don't get too many. So I wanted to just ask this one. This is quite, <laughs> quite, quite different from what we were just talking about. Um, we just ran a piece about, uh, you might've seen about Emma Jude Harris, the, the writer in, in London, the director in London who was protesting. Yeah. yeah. And this, this question specifically, what has your experience been writing very Jewish plays and celebrating deeply Jewish characters and experiences and seeing audience reactions during a, a, an era of growing anti-Semitism? And I know that applies definitely to The Lucky Star. Uh, I'm going to try to keep this short because I have yeah. kind of like a lot to say on this. Hey, we, we, there's, there's no time. I mean, we say two, but you know, we can go a little over. Okay, awesome. It's worth it, it's worth it. Uh, you know, anti-Semitism hits like lots of different forms. And I think that this chapter of anti-Semitism on the streets that's come in to the United States and even more so to Europe uh, in the Trump era and the rise of fascism is, is not an anti-Semitism that's the, um, okay, that's one thing. But I think there's another kind of anti-Semitism that is very quiet that's been there for longer in the American theater, even in the American theater and certainly in the British theater. Um, so when I was growing up and coming up, like there were a lot of Jewish plays in the American theater in mm -hmm. the late 20th century, like up through and including Tony Kushner, like there was a heavily em Jewish embrace of like Jewish and plays were kind of one and the same. Right, and right. Um, something changed really quietly. And I don't know, uh, I think it has to do with um, Israel and Palestine, mm, though it yeah. isn't only about plays that have to do with Israel and Palestine, but right. there are no longer as many, it is very, very rare to see a play that centers Jewish characters in American theater. There are a couple writers like Josh Harmon. There are a couple writers, yeah. but it's yeah. less common. And I think it's a quiet embarrassment. And I don't know the root of it exactly. Mm. 
Hmm. but it's chilling. There are a lot of plays about Christian characters. There are plays about different kinds of Christian characters. Yeah. There are plays about faith and yeah. faith remains of great interest. But I, it's been a, a harder time for Jewish works way, way, way before uh, overt anti-Semitism in the streets. So I, that is as much as I will say right now. But um, in fact, the rise in overt anti-Semitism is probably a good for a play like Book of Joseph, because instead of saying, why are we doing another play about the Holocaust? It's like, yeah. oh, guess what? This is actually relevant. You know, So some of the challenges that I felt I had 10 years ago to prove that, or to kind of put a fresh spin on why we should do a play like this now right. uh, are frankly less urgent because the actual anti-Semitism is, is back. Um, but it's more so a play like Goldie Max and Milk where there's a kind of um, arm's lengthness against um, Jewish characters. Yeah, no, I, I, I think one thing that struck me about uh, the context when you first did the Book of Joseph, Such Lucky Star, and it comes out in, even in this stage and it's in there is the, the relation to immigration politics, right? Um, yes, yes, yes. The, the, the immigration hearing where they talk about are you sure he's not going to be a public charge? I mean, that phrase is something that we heard during the Trump years. Um, uh, but yeah, I, and of course, that's that's not unrelated to to the larger story of anti-Semitism and refugees and the, the analogies there. Well, I don't want to necessarily end on, on that note. <laughs> oh, wait, but, can I throw something back? Because yeah, Ali oh, yeah, mentioned totally. Super Secret Arts. And yeah, I just yeah. want to do a shout out because my sister, Katie Hartman, it has a show at Super Secret Arts called David and Katie Get Remarried. That's this crazy, like she, so, so you were talking about my sister, Katie Hartman and her fiance, David Carl, who are both really getting married and also have had this show going for eight years. That's <laughs> crazy, hilarious in which they fake getting married. So I just wow. wanted to full circle back to Super Secret Arts. That's a great segue. We always like to end with plugs. And so let's end with that plug and also to plug Volt 2022, this mini play, this mini Karen Hartman play festival that's happening. Not mini, it's pretty. It's, it's three, every theater, three plays, all of three, all day. Three plays at 59, <laughs> 59 in New York City. So check it out if you can, if you're in town. Um, Karen, it's so great to talk to you. And so yeah, it's such a up. pleasure. Yeah. Thank you. Fantastic. I hope we get to do this IRL sometime. Agreed. Agreed. Right. See you. Take, see you at 59. Thanks, Bye. Bye. Take care. Thanks, Rob. Bye.